Good afternoon for those of you on the East Coast and good morning for those of you on the West Coast. My name is Felix Shipkovich and I'm humbled uh, for you to join um, <clears throat> our firm's uh, webinar uh, that will discuss enacted and proposed debt settlement legislation. Uh, we'll cover 2019 until present time, both proposed and enacted legislation. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Bianca Petkov. Um, <clears throat> This, uh, if you are um, a returning uh, guest from a recent uh, CFPB uh, convening webinar uh, that we held a couple of weeks ago, welcome back if you're new. Uh, we hope uh, the next uh, 45 minutes or so will provide you with an opportunity to learn and be acquainted uh, with the recent legislative changes. Now, um, as Bianca and I were preparing, uh, with a wealth of information that we're gonna to deliver to you. Uh, we like to do our best job to keep you engaged, keep you interested, and even potentially provide you with a few jokes and facetious statements. I think that when it comes to discussing any regulatory or legislative changes, you do have to bring a little humor to the conversation. Um, we will not be taking questions at the end of this webinar, but of course our contact information is available uh, both on our website, shipkovich.com, and uh, also will be available to you on the last slide. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who've joined to also learn about the recently proposed legislative change in the state of Cal California, um, I left the best for last. And so if you can stick around with us, uh, we will get to hear quite a lot of information about the recently proposed legislation affecting the debt settlement industry by Councilwoman Buffy Wicks. Uh, we'll digest uh, that uh, proposed legislation in detail um, and also provide you our thoughts. And that's one of the things that makes us a little different is that we try to educate um, the industry, the debt relief space uh, uh, with uh, some information, uh, humor and in-depth analysis. Um, so with that in mind, Let's, let's talk about what is the scope and purpose of today's event or today's webinar. Um, we'll talk about the enacted legislation in Virginia and Texas, and then we'll move on to the proposed legislation in Illinois, New Jersey, New York, and of course, for those of you who are eager to learn more about the proposed legislation in California, as I said, we'll leave it to the very end. Now, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Bianca Petku, and she will talk to you about the enacted legislation. Hi, everyone. All right, so we're going to start with Virginia. Um, so by now, hopefully you've had a chance to see our update on HB 1553, the newly enacted Virginia law, which amended and reenacted the Code of Virginia to include a chapter on debt settlement service providers. If you did not get a chance to read our update yet, I've included on this slide a very brief summary, but we recommend you read the update on Debt Relief Watch for more specific information. So. As you can see here, the bill was enacted around three weeks ago on April 7th and goes into effect on July 1st of next year, 2021. The bill itself defines debt settlement service companies as any action or negotiation initiated or taken on behalf of any consumer with any creditor of the consumer for the purpose of obtaining debt forgiveness of all or a portion of the credit extended by the creditor to the consumer or a reduction of payments, charges, or fees payable by the consumer. It's a lot of legal language, but it's, it's probably something you've seen before. So to simplify it a bit, basically now it includes a license requirement in Virginia and fee caps, which are now no more than 20% of the principal amount of the debt enrolled by a consumer into the licensee service, or no more than 30% of the difference between the amount owed by a consumer at the, at the time the licensee settles the debt and the amount to be paid by the consumer to satisfy the debt. All right, so next slide. So next we have Texas, which Texas is very straightforward and simple and there's really not too much to dive into here. There are some minimal increases in fee costs which I've outlined and highlighted in bold here for you. But basically these new fee amounts go into effect on July 1st of this year. And it's, you can see the numbers, it's really minimal increases, it's nothing uh, too crazy. But now onto the various proposed laws from last year, from the last year, a few of which have been creating quite a bit of buzz within the industry. So Felix will take it over from here. Thanks, Bianca. 
So uh, let's begin with Illinois. Um, Illinois is the easiest one to cover. It'll literally take about 30 seconds. Uh, look, what you really have to know is that it was introduced in January of 2020. It's currently assigned to the Financial Institutions Committee uh, where it's pending. There's not a lot of movement. Uh, there's nothing to be really alarmed about unless you're really alarmed about providing your email address, a <laughs> record to the Department of Financial uh, and Professional Regulation. That really is all there is. Um, I don't want anybody to be too concerned about the state of Illinois, particularly this piece of legislation, but certainly at the point that it's enacted and we'll keep our readers, uh, our followers uh, informed of when it gets enacted, you'll have to just make sure that your email is provided as an email of, a job, of record. Let's move on. Let's move on to the great state of New Jersey, the Garden State. Um, uh, for those of you who attended our firm's um, <clears throat> full-day regulatory workshop uh, six months ago in Irvine, California, um, we covered the state of New Jersey proposed legislation from 2019. Um, and um, it's moving at a very, very slow pace. Now, let's talk about the state of New Jersey. Um, for those of you who are practicing in the debt relief space and particularly have focus in the debt settlement space, the best way to discuss the, the, the kind of the scope of the space is that you got three buckets. I call it the three buckets because it's just easier to remember that way. The first bucket are the states where you do not need to be licensed. The second bucket is the state where you need to be licensed and you have to be aware of the fee caps. And the third list of states, and it's a very small list of states, particularly in this case, the state of New Jersey belongs to that list along with, for instance, like Louisiana and Hawaii, where what the industry considers to be attorney-only state or not-for-profit state, meaning that under New Jersey's current debt adjuster law, uh, which is administered and enforced by the Department of Banking in the state of New Jersey, only non-for-profit social service agencies and not-for-profit consumer credit counseling agencies may operate, may operate debt adjustment services in the state, okay? Um, the same doesn't also, attorneys, as I mentioned, are exempted in the state of New Jersey. What this proposed legislation uh, that's been moving in a snail space, uh, I mean, very, very slow, is trying to do something different. It says, look, let's open up, uh, let's change the definition of the debt adjuster debt just law and to allow for for-profit adjustment companies to conduct business in the state as long as the company one doesn't receive or hold actually or constructively consumer funds which is very important right because for those of you who are in the debt settlement space you don't hold customer funds you shouldn't hold it you should be aware of the tsr amendment and clearly the uh, everything surrounding the federal trade uh, commission uh, rules uh, particularly the telemarketing rule which is the second prong um, it, the bill wants to allow for for-profit debt settlement companies to operate in the state uh, and to operate under a license. Um, for those of you who are eager to see what happens in the state of New Jersey, we'll keep our eyes and ears open. But as of right now, it's still uh, currently pending in the Senate Commerce Committee. And as we pointed out in bold at the very bottom of the slide, it's moving very, very slowly through the state legislature. Now, we're not leaving New Jersey yet. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but um, we want to stick around in New Jersey because something happened earlier this year, uh, just about two months ago, uh, which was a surprise uh, to um, uh, some debt, debt settlement companies or for us uh, uh, legal debt uh, settlement geeks. Um, we had a resolution. We had a resolution that was issued by two Democrats uh, who uh, are state legislators. You have their names right at the top of this slide. And um, first of all, what is a resolution, right? A resolution is not legislation. It's not voted on, technically. It's not, it doesn't become law. Um, at the bottom of the slide, just in case you really wanted to know more how, def how a resolution in the state of New Jersey is defined, it's just something that's adopted by state and general assembly to express the policy or opinions of the legislature. It's often used to petition Congress to take certain actions, establish study commissions composed entirely of legislators or appointees of the presiding officer, and so on. Look, that's, it is what it is, right? It's just nothing short of um, a resolution by, you know, adopted by, uh, proposed and adopted by uh, New Jersey state legislation, legislature, uh, without it actually being the law. It's more of a policy effort, right? So what was the scope of this resolution from two months ago? 
It urges efforts at state and federal levels to protect minority communities from certain practices of debt settlement companies. Now, why don't we stop right here? I think we need to digest this a little bit more uh, because if uh, the resolution is trying to urge federal and state level protection uh, for minority communities, the question comes down to is, was there a study, was there an increased number of complaints within the state of New Jersey, particularly affecting uh, certain minority communities where debt settlement became an issue? Bianca and I have done a pretty comprehensive review and, and be, you know, for, of the sort of, we call it the uh, history of this resolution, we couldn't find anything by these two legislators who said anything publicly uh, that minorities in the state of New Jersey were affected. And then the question is, what exactly is considered to be certain practices of debt settlement companies? That seems to be a very, very broad uh, statement. Um, and you could, I guess, make a judgment for yourself for you know, what that really means. But again, there's nothing historically that leads us to believe that uh, in the very recent future, there were certain practices in the debt settlement industry or companies in the state of New Jersey. And please be <laughs> bear in mind, New Jersey is an attorney or not-for-profit state only. So not really sure where the first prong comes into effect. The second is considering legislation restricting debt settlements companies on safe and then sustainable loans directly or indirectly to the consumers. Okay, well, we could stop right there. Um, because for-profit companies don't operate in the state of uh, New Jersey, I'm not really clear. I'm curious if you are listening to this webinar, how exactly uh, do loans come into the play? I, you know, there, there, there is an industry specifically geared towards loans uh, uh, for uh, debt settlement companies for those who qualify, but this is not the same thing here. Um, and um, Really, again, going back to, well, who are these, why loans are at issue and what, what really prompted the, the discussions about loans to consumers in the state of New Jersey uh, to be at issue for these two legislators. Um, here's another one. Encouraging the federal government to conduct a comprehensive review of its oversight of debt servicing companies to include a review of federal bankruptcy laws. Um, before we move on to the next part of that uh, prong, I, I'm not really sure also, comprehensive review of a set of debt servicing companies to include review of federal bankruptcy rules. Federal bankruptcy rules and debt settlement companies are two different beasts. They're two different buckets, and it's very difficult to really discuss one for the other. One is federal law. One is a matter of federal privilege, not a right, which is consumer bankruptcy, 713 for that matter. And another one is essentially a debt settlement service. Um, I'm having difficulty understanding why that was specifically put in here and what kind of review they're looking to conduct. Second prong, how debt settlement companies as act as credit counseling services? Um, well, first of all, debt settlement companies, uh, in my opinion, and I've worked with dozens of debt settlement companies over the years, do not provide credit counseling services. In fact, in fact, to the contrary, credit counseling uh, is a separate beast. It's a separate type of business uh, regulated on a state level and also regulated if you offer them for specific purposes. Uh, you need to get also approval from the U.S. trustee's office. Not really sure how exactly one operates as the other. Um, and then the third prong here is the status of these companies as money service businesses. And also, uh, quite a lot of confusion because Money service businesses, money transmitters are financial services companies. I am not really clear how debt settlement companies who do not receive clients' funds and those funds go into third-party escrow accounts operating in any way, shape, or form as money services businesses. So that also seems a little confusing. And a review of the enforcement of current laws and regulations by the CFPB and the FTC. Well, I think that probably is the most uh, realistic and practical uh, point uh, here. Um, so... Why did we decide to include this specific um, uh, resolution as part of our presentation is because it sort of goes hand in hand with the lack of information that some legislators and other members of the debt relief space have in the debt settlement companies. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, I don't think they have a full information to understand the services. And hopefully, as we digested this resolution, you understand that um, without really having um, you know, substantiated reason to issue these resolutions, I'm having a difficult time understanding really the purpose and who exactly it's trying to protect. 
Now, I'm going to turn it over to Bianca again, and she'll talk to you about the proposed legislation in New York. Thank you. Okay, so New York. New York is a bit denser, and we've included a lot of information on these slides for your own convenience to look at after the webinar when we post the slides, but for timeliness purposes, I'm only going to go over the most important bits. So most importantly to note, this proposed bill was first introduced last January in 2019, so it has been over a year since the bill was first introduced. So as you can see, it's moving very slowly through the New York State Legislature. As of January 8th of this year, it was referred to the Customer Affairs and Protections Committee, and it has been stalled there. And with coronavirus impacting a lot of state government's ability to hold hearings, it will seemingly be stuck there for a while longer. Um, okay, so please note here with the definition of debt settlement companies, that is a two-pronged definition, which includes both any person engaging in or holding himself, herself, or itself, out as engaging in the business of providing debt settlement services in exchange for or in expectation of any compensation or gain, or B, soliciting for or acting on behalf of any person engaging in or holding himself, herself, or itself out as engaging in the business of providing debt settlement services in exchange for or expectation of any compensation or gain. So this definition, just keep in mind in the back of your head, it'll come back up again during Felix's discussion of California's new proposed law to kind of compare and contrast the two states definition. And there have been some exceptions to the definition in New York, including the attorney exception that we've seen in other states. So I've included that in here too. So most states have licensing requirements to have this attorney exception as well. So on the next slide, we have the debt settlement services and what they're defined as in the proposed law. So please note here the use of the phrase offering to act or acting as an intermediary between or on behalf of a debtor and one or more of the debtor's creditors, which again, Felix will compare and contrast to the newly proposed legislation in California, which uses the term prorater that you might've heard of or seen. So all in all, this New York proposed legislation wants to adopt, oh, you can go to the next slide, sorry. Wants to adopt the Uniform Debt Management Services Act, which is the UDMSA for short, very easy to say, which therefore means that it would be a licensing requirement and fees in accordance with those outlined in the UDMSA for New York now. Um, so as you can see, the fee requirements on the next page, on the next slide are quite dense, so don't be alarmed by them, but yeah. But we've taken the liberty to bold the most important parts within the fee section again for your convenience. So after the webinar, if you decide to review what we've discussed or you want to discuss it more in depth, you can look at those bold sections to kind of get a better understanding of it. But just note that they are taken directly from the UDMSA, which you might have seen before in other states. And that's roughly what um, is proposed in New York, but it is moving very slowly. So it might be on the back burner for a while in New York. Thanks, Bianca. Um, also, for I, this is obviously a lot of information, and, and the slides are quite quite dense. We realize that um, you may want to get a copy of this presentation. First of all, we'll make uh, a copy of this presentation um, available on our firm's website, uh, so you can go back and refer to it. Um, obviously, a presentation does not provide any legal advice, but it is there for information purposes. However, it's a good reference in case you have any questions and. Um, uh, we're, we're obviously both Bianca and I available to answer any questions that you have, may have offline. Anyway, uh, let's move on to our favorite state, the state of California. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our remaining session here, remaining part of the webinar. So uh, for those of you who have been in the debt relief space, you probably have um, been aware um, through multiple channels about the recently um, proposed legislation in the state of California. Um, so let's discuss it. Uh, there were actually two legislations that were recently proposed. In fact, what's interesting, um, both uh, Assembly Bill 2443, which we'll discuss right now, and then uh, Bill 2524, uh, proposed on the same date, February 19th. Um, uh, for, for specifically Bill 2443, uh, this was co-sponsored by uh, Assemblywoman Buffy Dix uh, and Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. Um, well, what's interesting is that the, the one bill that uh, has um, many in the debt settlement industry to be quite concerned about, and we'll discuss um, 
we'll discuss uh, you know, in, in a few minutes, uh, Shelly Weber did not co-sponsor. It was just co-sponsored by Buffy Dix. Uh, anyway, going back to 2443, co-sponsored by two Democrats. It's an active bill. It's in the committee process in the Committee of Banking and Finance. And uh, currently, as uh, we are dealing with a global pandemic and uh, you know, both federal and state governments are operating at limited capacity, all hearings are currently postponed until further notice. Uh, what does that mean for you? It means you have an opportunity, if you disagree with this or the next uh, to be discussed legislation, to voice your opinion and to discuss this with, uh, um, you know, your, your attorneys, your compliance staff, and obviously your representatives, uh, even your local representatives, uh, even if you're out of South State, uh, ultimately it affects your business and affects your jobs. So um, let's talk about... Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> these uh, two um, individuals, uh, both are, uh, have been elected on a very progressive um, platform. They consider themselves progressives, uh, very, uh, well, I have to tell you that uh, at least Buffy Wicks in her district, and we'll discuss it in a minute, she is in, uh, you know, part of, of um, Berkeley and Oakland, California. Uh, which are known to have a progressive agenda. Uh, however, uh, both women have ran on platform uh, focusing on women's rights, civil rights, social justice, and education, which is the core foundation of progressive movement, right? Um, now, why are we talking about their background, right? Well, I think we should care, right? Because I think it's important to know that any proposed legislation that gets proposed and then subsequently enacted, um, needs to be carefully understood and understanding and understand that legislation uh, is part of a process that I think you need to know your audience, right? You need to know exactly why, what caused somebody to propose this legislation, right? Somebody didn't just wake up in the middle of the night and said, hey, I'm going to propose legislation that's going to, you know, change the Consumer Legal Remedies Act in the state of California. Obviously, there must be a reason behind it. Um, so what does is, what is this co-sponsored bill get to do? Um, and the bill basically uh, would specify vicarious liability under the provision that would be imputed to persons or entities providing payment processing services for any company that negotiates or promises to negotiate the settlement of debts owed to another. And at the bottom you see in, in italicized font uh, a little bit more information, uh, well, the actual literally um, what that revised uh, language of the Consumer Legal Remedies Act looks like. Now, that's this vicarious liability. For those of you who are not attorneys, I'll make it very simple. Vicarious liability means you're going to be liable for the acts of a third party, right? So in this case, the vicarious liability extends to payment processing services. And if you heard me speaking a few minutes before, Payment processing services could be one of the following. They could be one, money transmitter, and two, or two, technology company. If you look at the definition of a payment processor from the FinCEN perspective, FinCEN is a federal regulator, payment processors are deemed to be technology companies, and generally they do not need to be registered as money transmitters. Uh, you have to be able to fall within the four corners of a definition of a payment processor. Some states also, in fact, they exclude payment processors from being a money transmitter. So the question that's begged to be asked here is one, well, questions, what we need to ask is why are we including payment processors? Have payment processors been an issue? Have technology companies in the space been an issue? Two, what kind of payment processors? Are we talking about money transmitters or are we talking about technology companies? Three, let's take, for example, a company like, I don't know, randomly select a household name like PayPal, right? And I'm using PayPal solely for this example, not for any other reason. So we basically saying that if PayPal is working with a debt settlement company and that debt settlement company commits some unlawful or deceptive act, then we would hold PayPal to be responsible, vicariously responsible for any type of wrongdoing. That seems a little silly to me. Obviously, if PayPal knows has full knowledge that they're getting into bed with a company that's committing fraud. Sure, I can understand that you can't just willfully close your eyes on any type of illegal activities. But to really force payments processors, and as I said, <laughs> I'm kind of scratching my head here. I'm thinking, who are exactly these payment processor companies? Um, 
to be vicariously liable for the acts of debt settlement companies seems a little bit far stretched. I, I, I really don't know if, if how and why um, both of these uh, legislators decided to include this vicarious liability. Um, so just so you understand, I'm asking these hypothetical questions and asking all these questions, in fact, um, for, for this piece of legislation is because Bianca and I have spent countless hours in the past few weeks of really, um, you know, combing through, uh, you know, secondary materials available uh, to attorneys on Westlaw. Uh, you know, we've, we come through social media profiles for these, both of these um, legislators. We watch countless videos, interviews. We couldn't find after probably dozens of hours anything why in fact payment processors were an issue. Anyway, if you're a payment processor, be aware that uh, Assembly Bill 2443 is uh, going to affect you. Um, so please beware. Now, let's move on to the 800-pound gorilla. Oh, boy. Uh, Bill 2524. And that one got a lot of people uh, quite uh, worried. Um, it's, it was proposed, on the, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, also on February 19th, 2020. It is an active bill, and it's currently uh, in the process of making its way through the Committee of Banking and Finance in the state of California. Um, on the next slide, I'll actually provide you with um, who the names of the um, individuals who sit on that committee, um, but um, it's still there, and it's pretty active. We included for the purposes of this webinar, something that you can do now if you feel that this bill concerns you. Uh, remind you, we're not a lobbying firm, we're a law firm, and we're here to advise you and counsel the industry on issues that are pertinent to them. And, and as we're gonna discuss this bill, we're gonna really dissect it um, in, in, and point out some of the inaccuracies. In fact, to point out a lot of the issues with the legislative drafting, really terrible legislative drafting, as I'll point it out, I'll show it to you couple of minutes. There's nothing that stops you from submitting a letter of opposition. It's a very important part of the legislative process. Uh, if you believe that uh, the bill affects you negatively or a bill is unfair to you or a bill is poorly drafted. Um, so again, a little bit about Buffy Wicks. Um, she's been in the office uh, now for about 16 months, right? Since January 2019. She represents uh, portions of Oakland, Berkeley, and Richmond. Um, which is Northern California and very close to San Francisco. She's a member of the Committee in Banking Finance. Now, uh, having watched hours of her videos and interviews and speeches, she ran on a very progressive platform focusing on women's rights, youth issues, economic security, um, for particularly for minorities. Uh, it, there was absolutely nothing. And when I tell you nothing that uh, I could not find uh, a single bit, and I'd love for someone to actually point, you know, stand me corrected here, anything regarding the debt settlement or debt relief industry. In fact, right, if you think about the progressive platform, it intends to help the poor, right? It's supposed to protect the poor, it's supposed to look out for those who are in need and find ways that these individuals, right, are not taken advantage of, right? So let's take a look whether or not um, this particular uh, legislation, in fact, protects or does it. Here's just a list, as I promised you, by the way, of the members of the California Assembly of Banking and Finance Committee. Um, you, you know, it's primarily d Democrat. There are a few Republicans, but um, uh, again, she's the lone sponsor of this legislation. So if you disagree, you can contact every one of these individuals. Now, so what is uh, Ms. Wicks, uh, Councilwoman Wicks, looking to do? She is looking to amend the prorater law. First of all, I love the word prorater. I have absolutely no idea the word, why the word prorater is a, is a word that is used in California legislation. Um, you know, typically, um, you know, when it comes to regulation of debt relief companies and focus on the debt settlement companies, uh, le legislators typically use the word intermediary, debt adjusters, debt management services. A prorater is kind of a very strange word, and I hate to sort of emphasize uh, uh, to focus a little too much in this word, but I don't know if I technically agree that the word prorate is the right word to legally define someone who's performing that type of service. Um, anyway, we could move on. What I've done is what you see on the, 
middle of this slide is you see um, uh, the section um, 12.002.1, which is a definition of prorater. What you see in italicized, right, which is really just a couple of words, soliciting, processing, pay, uh, payment, are the two additions that she's trying to introduce as part of her revised legislature. Um, the highlighted parts, I highlight them specifically for this presentation, right? Um, at the bottom, you see New York, and I've compared, I've taken it part of what Bianca discussed earlier during this webinar, and I've highlighted, and I've also uh, I've highlighted, if you see, I bolded the word any, and I've highlighted parts so that we can do a little bit of comparison, right? Now, uh, why did I do this? I want you to understand how poorly drafted this legislation is and how little, if anything, it's trying to uh, accomplish. So let's read together. A prorate is a person for, for compensation engages in whole and part in the business of receiving or soliciting money or evidence thereof or processing payment for the purpose of distributing uh, the money or evidence thereof among creditors in payment and partial of the obligation of the debtor. Now, first, let's start with the word compensation. Um, I think it's very strange to leave the words compensation because if you look at the bottom of the slide, typically compensation typically means now or expected in the very near future. Some of the relationships that exist in the debt relief space or debt settlement space, if you really want to granulate this further, is there's expectation of future revenue if there's a profit sharing arrangement in place. Um, so if there's a question whether or not somebody in fact is going to be compensated or receives compensation, um, just think compensation really by itself is a very strange word to have here. Anyway, engages in whole and part. Now, I love to pick this language. I, I Clearly, we can't argue with the word whole. What is part? So if you are operating a, a website um, where you're not, you don't offer debt settlement services, let's assume that you offer information services in whatever, you know, other financial services, I don't know, selling stocks or, or trading oil, whatever it could be, or you are not for profit. So do you immediately come into the purview of, uh, uh, you know, this proposed legislative uh, change because you're part of the business. Um, I just, I, again, it, it was there from the beginning, but I just think the word part is a very vague and ambiguous word, and I don't like it. I, I really think it needs to be more what you have in New York, right? Engaging, holding yourself out, himself out uh, in the business of providing debt settlement service. You can't argue with that. That's pretty clear. So the whole and the part creates a lot of confusion. The word receiving was there, and as I mentioned to you earlier during this webinar, the word receiving is kind of a strange word because according to TSR, you shouldn't be receiving money. You should really be putting into third-party accounts that you have no control over. You can't have control because of TSR. And then you have the word soliciting. Now, so first of all, if you, the reason I highlighted the word soliciting money, I just have never seen any legislation ever to have soliciting money. Now, if you take out the word soliciting, and the previous wording was in the business of receiving money, that makes sense. But soliciting money? How could you be in the business in whole and part soliciting money? Um, even if you say, okay, well, you have to read the, the other part for the purpose of distributing money among creditors. So if you, I, I would love to see who in fact is considered to be in the business of soliciting money for the purpose of distributing it to creditors. Um, I, interesting, I mean, I could also say that an agent, right? An agent of a creditor is in the business of soliciting money for the purpose of um, distributing among creditors. Um, I realize that I'm granulating this really into needy details, but I do believe that if you're in the business of proposing legislation and wanting to make a positive change, you've got to at least somehow have a conscious understanding of the words that you're proposing, right? And the last part of this uh, processing payment, again, same comment as we have with the co-sponsored bill we discussed a few minutes ago. What does it mean processing payment? Wait a second. So if you're processing payment, if you're in the business of processing payment to distribute it to creditors, you now have to be a prorator. So in whole and part, so just for the purposes of this example, I'm sure PayPal might have, well, probably today, in some shape or form. And again, I'm not picking PayPal because of PayPal, but because obviously it's one of the 
better known payment processors and money transmitter to the American public. So does that mean that PayPal now has to become a prorater and be subject to registration? And I think that's quite silly. They're already a money transmitter. They're already licensed on the state level. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, now we move on to the attorney exemption, right? So we know that for those of us who are familiar with the debt relief space regulatory environment, we know that attorneys are generally in almost every single state are excluded from being licensed as a debt settlement or debt relief or credit counseling company. Now, why? Look, it doesn't matter what kind of lawyer, you don't have to practice bankruptcy law, right? If you're an attorney, uh, whether on a corporate level or consumer level, it's not unreasonable for you to assume that from time to time, your client's going to ask you to deal with issues involving creditors. And that doesn't mean delinquent debt. Creditors who are trying to collect and you disagree because you believe there's a you know, breach of contract uh, or you believe someone did not perform uh, the services and therefore you'd like to be able to negotiate down the debt, right? However, I do take an issue when a perfectly normal part of the attorney exemption, as you see crossed out, is being proposed to be deleted. And a very silly, very silly, and we'll explain to you why, very silly exemption is being, uh, is being proposed. So on top, we'll just, this, the, 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 existing, the existing attorney exemption says, the services of a person licensed to practice law in the state when the person renders services in the course of his or her practice as an attorney at law, right? Very clear, very concise. I have absolutely no idea who drafted this for or on behalf of Councilman Wicks, but to include the following proposed revision. Instead of having clear and concise language as it exists now, we have attorney and attorneys and law firms that meet all of the following criteria. First of all, it doesn't even say whether it should be in the state of California, right? Um, so basically, anybody from any other state could do this service? If so, I think it actually does the complete opposite. You're not protecting consumers in the state of California. Now, the first prong, and by the way, you have to meet all of the following criteria, and there are three criteria. The first criteria is the services rendered by the attorney or law firm do not result in charges or costs regulated by this division. Um, I mean, you know, rounding up my second decade of practice and, and, and teaching uh, law part-time at Hofstra Law School, I have to tell you, I don't know what that means. It's quite unclear. Well, Bianca and I actually spent some time digesting what exactly this first prong of this three-prong uh, test means. Um, I think we know what it means, uh, but it's not very clear because I really don't understand what exactly you have to do to render services uh, as an attorney that don't result in charges of costs regulated by this division. Uh, we assume, we assume what their basic, what, what, what Buffy Wicks uh, sponsored legislation essentially means that um, if you're performing services uh, that do not fall within the four corners of this legislation, uh, then you're exempt. I think, I think that's what she means. I, I don't know. I'd like to really hear directly from her. The second prong is fees and disbursements are not charges and costs shared directly and indirectly with a prorater or check seller. Now, uh, I can tell you that uh, fees and disbursements are not charges and costs shared. First of all, as I've said previously in my other webinars, educational forums, I said attorneys in every single state cannot share fees with non-attorneys. Um, I think I understand the purpose behind this language. I don't think it's egregious as the first <laughs> prong, uh, but that's why you have the two stars at the bottom. You have to look at the California Professional Rules of Conduct for Attorneys, which in fact prohibit prohibit the sharing of fees with non-attorneys. Um, you can't share fees. You could, you know, use the services of non-attorneys, but you can't. Attorneys can't generally share fees with non-attorneys for the services that attorneys perform. Three. The third prong, either of the following is true. Again, nitpicking, i really not a fan of people say, one of the following is true. I feel like I'm playing a game show here. I don't know why it was written in such a way, but okay, let's amuse us. A, in the prior year, the attorney or law firm engaged in less than blank, I guess they're going to try to figure this out, number of clients and debt settlement services. B, 50% or less the total number of client engagement of attorney or law firm involved in settlement services. 
first of all, I, 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 I am very curious uh, if the California State Bar will, will have any issues with this language, because um, frankly, I don't know if uh, really this impedes on their territory, um, whether or not someone can actually restrict the amount of fees uh, to be charged for the individuals in that state um, that are not prohibited under the professional responsibility rule of that state. Two, um, if it says, if, if in prong A, the attorney law firm engaged in less than blank number of clients, who is it to say, why should the state of California mandate who exactly should have number of clients? Um, uh, let, let, let's be very clear. The word debt settlement services, right? Attorney debt settlement services. According to 11 USC 528, and for those who really want to, you could, you could copy and paste and look into it further, but I can tell you in a nutshell, on the federal law, bankruptcy services. Now, when I say bankruptcy, it means any bankruptcy, bankruptcy law firms or bankruptcy services are considered to be debt relief services. In fact, bankruptcy law firms have to provide the disclaimer or notice to their clients that they are a debt settlement company, right? The, the services that they are performing in the furtherance of providing bankruptcy services are debt relief services. I'm sorry if I use the word debt settlement, debt relief services. So I don't understand why exactly the state of California, particularly Council on Vicks, would like to restrict the compensation that attorneys and law firms make while providing debt settlement services, which debt settlement are considered to be debt relief services. Anyway, I think that is quite fascinating. Now, fee caps. Uh, well, <laughs> the proposed, uh, you, she, she struck in her sponsored legislation the fees that were already significantly lower than in most other states. And in fact, was to have 5% of savings from a completed settlement calculated as the difference between the amount of debt enrolled and the settlement amount. Now, I want to step outside of my legal shoes and ask a very interesting question. So let's assume a person has $25,000 of unsecured debt and a debt settlement company provided over the course of, well, let's say 36 months, three years, right? That's usually kind of an average um, debt settlement program is about three years, provided a service to negotiate with multiple creditors and reduce that debt by $10,000, $10,000. In this case, the 10, 5% from $10,000 of savings means 500 bucks. $500 is not a lot of money to make for negotiating with probably multiple creditors and spend three years servicing a file. Um, even if you look at the fee caps that credit counseling companies uh, have uh, following the 2005 um, legislative revision, uh, federal legislative revisions, uh, even they make more than that. Uh, so even if you provide... 15,000 off, if you shave that off of $25,000 debt, you know, you're looking at $700, $750 fee, which is, doesn't seem like a lot of money or commercially feasible for anyone to, to be in this type of business. Um, now, if you thought that part was bad, let's talk about the, <laughs> another part. So as you can see, she, you know, nixed <laughs> most of the fee caps that currently exist. By the way, when something, when you're trying to lower fees, when you're trying to lower fees for any type of service because you feel the existing fees that exist are too egregious, there has to be some kind of level. For instance, justification of why you're proposing this, right? So there has to be something that says, we believe that most consumers were hurt or didn't get um, you know, the fair buck uh, of services that they paid for the services that they received. So I have absolutely no idea how these numbers came about, why the 5% in savings, where it came about. There was no discussion. There's nothing discussed on her very active social media profile. There was not an interview given. And you have to raise some eyebrows. So where exactly, who's feeding Council and Bix with this information, right? I mean, regulation is important. But, but, but proposing, <laughs> proposing fees that, uh, that seem very insensible, it almost like, let's use as an example, you know, if an average oil change costs, I don't know, $20, right? And from that 20 bucks, you're, you, know, you know, the auto shop will make five bucks, right? Because between the, the labor cost and the fuel and the oil cost cost them 15, they'll make five. But now imagine the state of California thinks, well, you guys are overcharging an oil 
um, <laughs> car oil changes, and you can't charge more than $5. How many oil change, you know, how is it going to benefit consumers? This is a very similar example. These limitations on fees need to be in perspective of what the customer complaints are, what the regulatory regime is across the entire country, and they also have to be reasonable. Otherwise, it doesn't seem, you know, they're very arbitrary and almost capricious in nature. So, Here's another restriction. The total monthly payment by a debtor into a debt settlement trust account shall not exceed 10% of debtor's monthly net income, right? And then part two is, you know, what that monthly net income is. I have a real problem with this as an attorney. I have a real problem with this. This is a problematic. At what point do you consider the 10% net income? At the point that you enroll into the program? Okay. Let's assume you could, can, first of all, I think at, at this point that you have people uh, working for debt settlement companies trying to figure out what exactly is 10% of debt as monthly net income, okay? Um, and I'm not an economist. I'm not a consumer debt economist, but 10% of debt income. So if somebody has significant amount of debt and wants to get out of debt, um, spend more than percent of net income doesn't seem also quite reasonable, but again, I, what do I know in that space, right? But at what point legally do you have to calculate that monthly net income? Do, you know, if you have to, so for instance, let's assume somebody, you know, John Smith, fictitious name, rolled into the program 12 months ago. And in March, 2020, as a result of COVID-19, John lost his job, but job, John wants to continue making payments into his debt settlement program because uh, XYZ debt settlement company was able to resolve it for significantly less um, you know, money than he would have had to file for bankruptcy, or maybe he doesn't want to file for bankruptcy. For those of you who are from, you know, have filled out or helped somebody fill out the PPP application, every single lender, including, by the way, the SBA, will ask you for principal, or if you, a principal, the owner of the company, uh, any owner of 20% or more of the company had filed for bankruptcy in the past seven years, right? So if John doesn't want to file for bankruptcy, but now John's net income, according to B2, has, you know, his payments have increased to 10%. I, you essentially saying that according to this proposed legislation, the debt settlement company would be in violation right? And what are we doing? We're also potentially opening up floodgates of litigation because, you know, now you basically could, someone could easily be um, in violation of uh, B1. Anyway, let's move on. Disclosures. Disclosures are very, very important. Consumers need to understand the pros and cons of any program. By the way, regardless of what program, whether credit counseling, whether consumer bankruptcy, uh, or debt settlement or any other program out there. It's important to educate consumers. But these disclosures have to be reasonable. They have to make sense, right? They have to make sense. And they also have to be written in such a way that somebody understands this. So let me give you an example. This is the disclosure that was, that's proposed by Buffy Wake's legislation. It says, number two, the number of months estimated to settle all debts. The true disclosure should be to this estimated for you to participate in the program because somebody could pull out a particular debt out of the program. Somebody may not want to um, include all debts in their program. So that's really not the proper disclosure. I think the proper order should be here program. Um, another thing that I think is strange is number four, the debtor is, you have to disclose that the debtor is required to pay all bills unless the creditor states otherwise. Well, geez, aren't you really helping out creditors by including that disclosure? Um, if you want to help consumers, if you'd like to warn them about the risks of a debt settlement program, well, telling them that they have to continue making payment defeats the entire purpose of them being in a debt settlement program because there's no leverage to negotiate with creditors. And if you're a creditor listening to this web, uh, webinar, you're probably saying, well, I don't like when debt settlement companies send me cease and desist letters or tell their clients not to pay. The bottom line is there is no debt settlement if you're continuing to pay all bills. Let's, let's use it as a very practical example. John Smith comes to a consumer bankruptcy lawyer. It doesn't matter where the lawyer is located, anywhere in the 50 states. And John Smith says the following, I'd like to file for bankruptcy. 
And the lawyer says, okay, uh, I'm going to need the following documents from you. And hopefully in about, I don't know, two weeks to 30 days, I'll be able to prepare a petition and we'll file it with a court. John Smith's asked the lawyer, well, do I have to continue paying bills that will be discharged? Can you imagine the amount of malpractice that a lawyer would commit by basically telling a consumer that, go ahead, make that payment because, you know, you have to make that payment. No, you don't. If you believe as counsel, as a counselor, as a consumer bankruptcy counselor, that, you know, you have a client with dischargeable debt, why would you tell them to continue making payments if obviously you're trying to help that client? Same thing goes here, okay? So that's basically the disclosures part. Uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of interesting. Anyway, that is the end. This, we're close to the end. This is a list of uh, services uh, our law firm performs for the debt relief industry. We work with lenders, debt settlement companies, credit counseling companies. Uh, we work uh, uh, both in federal and state um, level uh, licensing, regulatory investigations, uh, and really be delighted to assist and discuss any issues uh, that you have concerning uh, these proposed and enacted legislations. You could always subscribe. Uh, we have a free information website. You could keep up with your legal regulatory news, or you could keep up with your market news affecting the debt relief industry. Debtreliefwatch.com. Uh, it's free. You get actually uh, uh, you know, direct feeds from the CFPB and the FTC. So you can keep it all, you get all the information in one place. And of course, always a big thank you to Jay Mangiano from Limit Break Digital Marketing Design. Jay has been instrumental in helping us put together uh, our previous programs, including this program. His information is here. He performs a significant amount of marketing and, and uh, design services uh, in the fintech space, in the debt relief space. So please reach out to him. I always like to give him kudos. And finally, I'd like to thank my co-host, Bianca, for helping me um, organize and put this together. Uh, she's done an outstanding job. And we thank you for joining us today. And we hope this was informative. I hope there was a little humor and cynicism. And we hope to see you at our future webinars. Thank you for joining and have a wonderful day.